The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode I'll be talking about Robbie Williams. Known for being one of the best live performers and entertainers out of the UK and for being one of the most controversial and cheeky artists of the industry, Robbie would rise from a working class family in England to becoming one of five teenagers of a highly successful boy band of the 90s. But after leaving for greener pastures, it was as a solo artist that Robbie would rise to great heights, performing in front of some of the biggest crowds recorded and selling almost 80 million albums worldwide. This is the story of Robbie Williams. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Robbie Williams was born Robert Peter Williams on the 13th of February 1974 at the Royal Infirmary in Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire, England and was raised in the surrounding areas of Stoke-on-Trent including Burslem and Tunstall by his parents. His parents were Teresa Jeanette Farrell, also known as Jan, and his father Peter Williams. Peter Williams was a well-known local celebrity to the township of Stoke-on-Trent, where he was a well-liked entertainer who went by the stage name Peter Conway. The year prior to Robbie being born, Peter was the host of the popular UK television talent show New Faces. Peter would tour England and perform as a musician, host, comedian and entertainer. A hero in the eyes of the Stoke community, he would often perform at Jolly's nightclub in Stoke. Despite Peter making a name for himself, his wife Jan worried that he wasn't spending enough time with his family, and while supportive, she didn't fully approve of his tours. In 1975, when Robbie was just a one-year-old, his father Peter begrudgingly put his aspirations as a travelling entertainer on hold to become a family man and purchase the Red Lion Pub in Burslem. The Williams family moved out of their home in Tunstall and into the second floor of the pub, becoming both their house and business. Robbie and his 10-year-old half-sister Sally enjoyed getting up to mischief in the pub, with Robbie on one occasion opening his bedroom window and throwing £2,000 worth of the pub's hard-earned money out of the window and onto the street below. The mischievous child would earn himself a reputation as a funny and cheeky young boy. From just the age of three, Robbie's mother knew he wanted to be famous when he stepped up onto stage on a family holiday at a kid's talent show and performed Summer Nights from the popular musical film called Grease, with Robbie impersonating John Travolta down to a T and showing early signs of his showmanship. Robbie had picked up on these dance moves and singing style after watching the film and listening to the music from Grease played on the jukebox in his parents' pub. For his dad, Peter running a pub was not the life he had dreamed of and he struggled with the daily grind of running the family business. After two years of running the Red Lion pub and his marriage breaking down with Jan, Peter and Jan divorced in 1976 when Robbie was just two years old. 
Jan remained at the pub, running it until 1977, before she decided to sell up and move with Robbie and Sally back to Tunstall, near their beloved grandparents' house, before relocating the following year a couple of streets away in Tunstall. Robbie's father, Peter, decided to focus on his career and re-establishing himself as an entertainer and stand-up comedian. He would come in and out of the children's lives for a period of Rob's childhood before seeing him more regularly when Rob was a teen, with the two always remaining close despite these events. Robbie would often visit his father on holidays and weekends when his father wasn't out of town for shows. Robbie attended a couple of primary schools and was a chubby freckled faced child when he attended Mill Hill Primary School in Tunstall from 1983 to 1985. But this didn't stop him from having many girlfriends throughout school with his funny and cheeky personality shining through. Robbie was uninterested academically and struggled as a student often being the class clown and cheeky devilish child. Despite this, he excelled at sports, most notably football, as he supported the local club, Port Vale FC. Robbie would often head down to Victoria Park, located behind his house, and play football with his mates and dream of becoming a pro footballer. At the age of eight, Robbie starred in the school play playing the role of the devil chosen by his teacher due to his cheeky personality. As a teenager, Robbie attended St Margaret Ward Catholic High School. Robbie personally hated school, often receiving the comment, could do better, in his report card, and discovering instead that he wanted to pursue a career in acting and performing arts. He got involved in several school plays and occasionally would appear in the local newspapers for his efforts. He also took up tap dance lessons and became a member of five different local amateur theatres in nearby Staffordshire. Robbie would often express to his teachers that he would one day be a star and be in showbiz, but although they thought he was a natural entertainer, they told him he was wasting his time on silly dreams, and one teacher in particular would put him down on the daily and give him a horrible and nasty nickname named Thingy. In 1988, when Robbie was just 14 years old, he would star in a local production as the artful Dodger from the musical Oliver. Robbie was a natural talent with loads of charisma as he strutted around stage with confidence and played the role perfectly, singing, dancing and acting up a storm. Hey, uh, what's you, Stevie Nicks? Ain't you never seen a jinx? My name's Oliver, Oliver Twist. <laughs> oh, my name's Jack Dawkins. Ben Antamamua, hints him at friends as the artful budget. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Dawkins. Come a think of it. I ain't got no intimate friends. Still, what's the difference, me pork sausage? You're coming with me. Are you sure Mr. Fagin won't mind? Mind? Consider yourself. As all. Consider yourself. Oh, one of the family. Oh, we talk to you. So strong. It's clear. We are going to get yourself. Robbie earned himself a standing ovation for the performance, and he could feel the energy of the crowd as they cheered and clapped, which further consolidated for him that this was in fact what he wanted to pursue as a career. Robbie's first job as a youngster was at the florist named Bloomers that his mother owned. 
His mother also ran a ladies fashion shop upstairs, with Robbie's jobs involving making the bouquets and doing some computer related tasks. Robbie would attend many games of his favourite football club, Port Vale FC. This passion for the club intensified when his father became a licensee of the Port Vale FC social club. The two would often attend games together and when his father was in town, Robbie would attend his gigs and experience what it was like to hang out backstage with his father and the other entertainers, giving him a taste of the life of an entertainer. Robbie would grow up listening to a range of music from pop, rock, jazz and classical with Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, U2, George Michael, Queen, Motorhead, Patti Smith and Oasis being some of his major influences. Robbie's father would utilise his connections in the entertainment industry and link Robbie up with a part-time position at the local radio station called Signal 2 with disc jockey Mel Scholes. He was assigned to the newsroom to assist the presenter with putting together the sports report. He would work on Saturdays and some weekdays when not at school. Mel noticed Rob had charisma and his cheeky personality earned him occasional work on air by doing celebrity impersonations such as Michael Crawford. The job only paid about £10 an hour and Robbie began searching for something that paid better. In 1989, at age 15, Robbie began looking for acting and theatre roles when his mother stumbled upon an advertisement in the paper that was looking at starting a boy band. The ad stated, Wanted, young male singers or dancers, five boys with good vocal and dance ability for exciting new pop band. His mother sent away his CV to audition for the pop band. In the meantime, he worked as a double glazed window salesperson after dropping out of high school at the age of 16 after failing his GCSE examinations. Robbie hated this job though and would often tell customers how poorly made their products were, making his work colleagues frustrated. Robbie would shortly after receive word that he was successful to audition for the boy band and hope landing the gig would pull him out of this slump. Robbie would soon receive a call to attend an interview and audition in Manchester with the band's manager, Nigel Martin-Smith. Nigel's intentions was a starter British boy band destined to rival the American boy band New Kids on the Block and to make as much money as possible as soon as possible. Dressed in an orange hoodie, Robbie travelled to Manchester with his mother for the audition where he would meet the 18-year-old Mark Owen from Oldham for the first time. Mark was first to hear back from Nigel about the audition for the band and had previously been working as a banker while being a handy football player once trialling for Rochdale and Manchester United. Mark and Robbie were both embarrassed by the presence of their mothers, as young teenagers usually were, and the two shook hands and instantly bonded over football before heading inside for the auditions. It was here that the boys would meet other hopefuls, Gary Barlow and Jason Orange. On first glance, Gary felt intimidated by the physical fitness of the other fellas, while Jason appeared to think that Robbie was a geek and struggled to connect with him initially. Robbie's first thoughts about Gary was that he looked like a knob and was wearing rich style clothes like Converse and Italia, while his personality also failed to click with Robbie. Prior to the audition, 19-year-old Jason Orange was an apprentice painter and decorator for Manchester Council who was also a breakdancer by night, earning him appearances on the dance show The Hitman and Her. Also aged 19 was Gary Barlow from Manchester, who had actually experienced somewhat of a bright beginning to his career. 
Inspired by the music of Depeche Mode's Just Can't Get Enough, Barlow would learn to sing and play piano at a young age, and at the age of 15, he would perform on the BBC's Pebble Mill in a Christmas song competition, performing an original he wrote called Let's Pray for Christmas. Over time, he would perform almost 600 gigs at a working men's club in Wales every Saturday evening. Despite starting off performing covers, Gary began to write his own songs and recorded a demo track called A Million Love Songs that he handed to Nigel at his audition. Coming in late to the audition was 21-year-old Howard Donald from Droylsden. He previously worked as a vehicle painter and had also performed as a break dancer where he had met Jason Orange previously. Howard was much like Mark and appeared to click with all of the fellas and was easy going. During the audition process, Robbie was incredibly nervous and Nigel's strict persona didn't help him in any way. Those auditioning were required to be interviewed on their background and were told to perform and sing the Jason Donovan song, Nothing Can Divide Us, as well as dance to MC Hammer, with Robbie choosing to perform The Running Man as his selected dance. When Robbie had finished his audition, he went to walk out of the room when he looked over his shoulder and gave Nigel a cheeky wink. In the end, that moment would land him the final spot in the band as Nigel saw something in his cheeky persona. Gary Barlow would be the first member to be selected as Nigel listened to his demo and couldn't believe it was the 19-year-old singing. Nigel attempted to build the band around Gary as the mature and talented songwriter, with the other four members being Mark, the cute and kind, Howard, the quiet type and model, Jason, the serious one and great dancer, and Robbie, the joker. Nigel would come up with the name Kick It for the band before renaming them Take That. Joining us in the studio all morning are the latest teenage heartthrob. They're with us today, live on the A15. Take That! <laughs> now, perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself to the nation. Go on. I'm you. Robbie. I'm Gary. I'm Mark. And I'm Edward. I'm Jason. <laughs> and we are. Take That! At the beginning of 1990, at the age of 16, Robbie would attend his first rehearsal with Take That. Nigel worked the band members extremely hard with strict choreography and a boot camp style mentality. They would be required to do loads of push-ups, sit-ups and dance and singing routines every day. Robbie struggled with taking it seriously initially, often treating the dancing as a joke and would often find himself staying back with the dance instructor, honing his skills as he was the slowest to learn. Nigel would set out a large number of strict rules for the boys to follow that included no full-time girlfriends, no smoking, no bad press, no drugs and alcohol, and no public or TV appearances without the rest of the band. Basically, anything that Nigel says goes. He would use them as his puppets for his financial gain. After all, it was a business. In the early stages, Nigel wanted to take that to appear controversial and would have Robbie and his bandmates perform at high school assemblies and under 18 year old clubs as they were made to dress in lycra, bondage style gear, makeup, leather and have them perform at gay nightclubs and bars also. Not exactly the greatest place for young men to start their career as they would often be groped, pinched and prodded by the audience as they made their way through the crowd to centre stage. Nigel himself was a gay man and wanted their music and fashion style to appeal to the gay scene originally, before realising later on that young teenage girls should also be their target audience. It led to a large amount of media speculation over the sexuality of the band members, which would remain throughout their careers. 
Robbie and his bandmates were highly embarrassed by the way they were required to dress, despite seeming like they were enjoying themselves. Before Take That was signed to a record deal, they would perform on the TV show The Hitman and Her twice in 1990, performing the Gary Barlow-ridden tracks My Kind of Girl and Love, which were never released commercially. Their performances were highly choreographed and had girls and boys in the UK becoming excited to see more of the new band. In 1991, Gary would pen a further three tracks with one of these being the debut single, Do What You Like. Released on the 12th of July, 1991, the simple pop track was accompanied by a controversial music video that gathered a lot of attention as the Take That boys were seen rolling around at times in the nude, being covered with jelly. It was all a bit too much for some people, with the track only making it to 82 on the UK charts. Although, it was enough to get the attention of RCA Records, who signed them that year, in September. Take That would go on to complete their debut album titled Take That and Party, with Gary teaming with Graham Stack to co-write and produce the songs, leaving Robbie and the other three out of the frame. On the 18th of November 1991, Take That released their second single, titled Promises, which only made it to number 38 in the UK. Following this, their third single, Once You've Tasted Love, failed to beat it in early 1992, only reaching number 47 in the UK. In need of a big hit to save themselves from potentially being dropped by their label, they turned to a cover version of the Tavir's It Only Takes a Minute to turn their fortunes around. They opted to also alter their fashion style and ditch the jelly-covered music videos. Take That appeared much more macho and respectable in a black and white camera filter as the video for the song centres around a boxing ring. They were now targeting a more female audience and the single peaked at number 7 in the UK and 11 in Ireland, giving Take That their first taste of success and Robbie getting his first solo lines towards the end of the song. Robbie would get his first chance to shine on the next single, released on the 10th of August 1992, called I Found Heaven. Producer Ian Levine asked Gary to step aside as the lead vocalist to allow Robbie to sing a large majority of the song. This upset Gary as he felt he was the lead singer and was visibly jealous and bitter towards Robbie, singing on the track that he had wrote. When the track reached number 15 on the UK chart, their popularity began to grow and it was obvious Gary held some resentment towards Robbie from that point on. Out of the five members of the band, Jason struggled the most vocally and would be left out of most vocal recordings on their albums and was there more so for his looks and dancing ability. Seven days later, Take That officially released their debut album, Take That and Party, on the 17th of August 1992, which reached number 2 in the UK and number 8 in Ireland. The album would go double platinum in the UK, selling around 2 million copies worldwide. Take That would have a second top 10 hit when they released Gary Barlow's earliest demo recording as a single titled A Million Love Songs on the 5th of October 1992. The pop ballad would chart at number 7 on the UK charts and sold 200,000 individual copies. Gary would once again sing lead on this track and after Robbie had a taste of leading a single earlier, he felt held back and often pushed to the back. Robbie began to start taking drugs and drinking heavily in the early days of Take That, with cocaine and vodka Robbie's preferred substances. Although his drug taking significantly intensified while in Take That, Robbie had been involved with acid, speed and marijuana in the past 
and was a heavy cigarette smoker. Much of these behaviours were kept secretive though, as Nigel attempted to sweep these antics under the carpet in order to keep take that in the news for all the right reasons. Topping their latest charting track would be another tune that heavily featured Robbie as a lead vocalist called Could It Be Magic, a cover version that was written by Barry Manilow. Robbie provided his cheeky trademark voice for this banging pop hit that saw Take That reach number 3 on the UK charts in Ireland and broke into the charts worldwide, reaching the top 50 across Europe and Australia. Could It Be Magic became their best-selling single on the album and earned them their first Brit Award for Best British Single. With their quick rise to pop stardom, they began building a crazed fan base of screaming teenage girls. They wrapped up their debut album with Why Can't I Wake Up With You, charting at number 2 on the UK charts, yet again improving on their previous track's position. Following the album's success, Take That took on their first official album tour, travelling around England and Scotland for 19 shows, while performing three of these shows at Wembley Arena. Following their dramatic rise to fame during the early 90s, Take That won five smash hit awards and would release their first number one single called Prey on the 5th of July 1993. The pop ballad was a typical boy band hit, peaking at number one in the UK and making the top ten in Ireland, Australia, Portugal, Latvia and Norway. Gary once again would write the song, which was seen as a dramatic mature change to Take That style. Prey would earn Take That two Brit Awards for Best Music Video and Best Single while earning Gary Barlow his first ever Ivor Novello Award for Best Contemporary Song. Since cover songs had proven successful in the past for Take That, they would select the song Relight My Fire, previously by Dan Hartman, as their next single on the 4th of October 1993. It would become their second number one in the UK and Israel, while charting in the top 10 in a further five countries, including Ireland. For this particular track, they opted for a female vocal to accompany Gary as a lead vocalist for this club dance tune. Robbie was in line to sing the lead for the track, but Gary had decided his vocals weren't good enough, and as one of the producers, he took it up himself to record his own voice to the track without telling the others. When Robbie found out Gary had recorded it without telling him, he was devastated and this was one of the key factors that intensified the rift between the two. Robbie began feeling depressed and would return to his hotel room alone and emotionally break down, sobbing uncontrollably and drinking away his sorrows. He would often mask these feelings by playing the role of the Joker in the band, but early signs were there to see but the others simply didn't step in and help him. Days later, on the 11th of October, Take That officially released the album, Everything Changes, which became their first number one album in the UK, where it went four times platinum. It would also become huge worldwide, making the top ten in ten countries, including Germany, Ireland and Japan, and would eventually sell around four million copies worldwide. After the release of the album, they would hit gold again with the track Babe going to number one in the UK, Japan and Ireland after being released in December 1993. The massive hit also reaching the top ten in a further nine countries and would be the first time fan favourite Mark Owen would feature on lead vocals. On the 28th of March 1994, Robbie would get another shot at the lead vocal on the single Everything Changes. The catchy pop track became the fourth number one in the UK so far on just the one album alone and Robbie's first number one on lead vocals. 
Robbie made the song his own with his fresh voice providing a different sound to the band. The music video shows a smiley happy Robbie with his typical 90s style haircut as he belts out some of his best personal vocals to date with Take That. The hits just kept coming with Love Ain't Here Anymore released in May reaching number 3 in the UK and number 1 in Latvia. Each single released was now selling over 200,000 copies each, and their second album couldn't be any more successful, earning them a nomination for a Mercury Prize for the best album released that year. Take that success rapidly multiplied, making them the biggest act in British music at the time. With four number ones off the one album, they quickly became pop royalty in the eyes of teenage girls. Everywhere they went, they would be swarmed by screaming fans, with Take That's tour bus and private cars being surrounded by fans trying to get as close as possible. Robbie and his bandmates would be grabbed from every direction, copping pokes in the eyes, wayward smacks in the mouth, and needing security to tuck the boys under their arms and drag them through swarms of diehard fans, almost being trampled in the process. Their houses would be surrounded by press and screaming fans, attempting to climb over fences and get onto the property by any means. Fans would stand outside their windows at all hours of the day singing Take That songs and throwing items at their windows trying to get their attention. They couldn't go to the shops without fans following them and some went as far as stalking by sneaking into hotel rooms pretending to be maids and sending death threats if they were seen kissing other girls. Take that merchandise such as t-shirts, hats, stationery, lifelike dolls and posters were flying off shelves as quickly as they were put there. The names Jason, Robbie, Gary, Howard and Mark also increased popularity with many newborns being named after them in the UK and across Europe. Robbie and the boys were on every radio station, billboard and TV breakfast show and found themselves on the cover of numerous magazines such as Smash Hits and GQ. While they built up quite the award collection after taking home Brit Awards, Silver Clefs, MTV Europe Awards and Smash Hits. To teenagers across Europe, Japan and the UK, they were the hottest band since the Beatles and the hysteria was pure craziness. They embarked on a tour of the UK and Europe packing out arenas and performing 43 shows. Their shows were full of energy and had great stage production with a variety of costume changes and dance routines entertaining fans from all over. Robbie began to take advantage of the good life, travelling on first class flights, staying in nice motels and having beautiful food and drink whenever they wanted. The boys began sneaking girls into their rooms against the wishes of Nigel, who was at the time unaware of this. Due to the hysteria over the band, Robbie was required to build a large security fence around his mother's home to keep crazed fans from coming onto the property. Although this didn't stop fans from finding a way in, so he had to relocate her to a new home before the fans again found out where she was living, forcing Rob to move her to a third house that was more secure. Despite all the apparent fun and shenanigans while the camera was rolling, there was also a darker side to the full-on life of a boy band. When working on the next studio album, Robbie began to grow tired of the lack of input to songwriting and the lack of lead vocals he was allowed to do on the new tracks, as well as the non-stop rehearsals, tours, interviews, media pressure and fan hysteria. It all became too much for the now 20 year old. Robbie began heavily drinking, becoming accustomed to indulging in cocaine and becoming severely depressed. 
although Robbie would do well to hide this from his bandmates, continuing with his Joker persona and always appearing like a happy, funny and easygoing member of the band. Robbie was on the outer most of the time, as Nigel tended to favour Gary and the others, perhaps with Robbie's unpredictable Joker attitude being too much for the strict manager. Gary would receive much of the praise both off of Nigel and the music industry as a sole songwriter and brains behind the band earning him Ivor Novello awards which infuriated Robbie. Robbie would do away with his boy band image shaving off his hair opting for a more mature bad boy look for the next album called Nobody Else. The first single titled Shaw was released on the 3rd of October 1994. It was the first and only track that Robbie would receive a writing credit on while we've taken that in the 90s. And the hit went to number one in the UK and Scotland while making the top 10 in six other countries including Denmark and Ireland. Due to the songwriter receiving almost 90% of the royalties, it had been a long time coming for Robbie to get his name on the songwriter's credits, unlocking that extra cash. Due to Gary having his hand in almost every song, he earned the most money in the band which often drove a rift between him and Robbie. Gary was now quite well off compared to the rest of the band which was quite unfair as without them Gary wouldn't have stood out. To further promote Shaw and their latest ad campaign deal with Kellogg's, Take That embarked on their third tour called the Pops Tour where they performed 60 shows across Europe and the UK. It would be a long wait before their next single release, coming almost six months after their first on the 27th of March 1995. It would be well worth the wait for Take That fans though, and would become their biggest worldwide hit of their career as a band. It was called Back For Good, the pop ballad was a simply beautiful song, and their most critically acclaimed hit yet. Going to number one in eight countries including the UK, Australia, Spain and Canada. Its far reach didn't stop there, breaking into the top 10 in 9 countries across Europe and in Japan, while also reaching the US market on their adult charts. To top it off, it reached number 6 in New Zealand and number 7 on the US Billboard Hot 100, cementing it as a worldwide mega-hit, selling over 2 million copies of the single worldwide. The track was also well known for its iconic black and white video clip, showing all 5 members in large fur coats singing and dancing in the rain. The clip starts with the iconic shot of the five walking in slow motion in the rain as cars pass by them, followed by the shot of the band underneath a shelter as Robbie appears quite cool and collected in this clip, sporting a large fur coat and black sunglasses before busting out some humorous dance moves in the rain in dramatic slow motion. The perfect mix of the song and music video furthering their sales and notoriety around the world and earning them several awards including a Brit Award for Best Single, a US Billboard Award for Best International Single and second Ivor Novello Award for Gary Barlow for the Song of the Year. Due to the success of Back For Good, Robbie believed he was now unable to be sacked which only increased his cockiness and drug taking habits. Other members of the band had their moments of drinking and drug taking, but no one took it as far as Robbie did. On the 8th of May 1995, Take That released their third album titled Nobody Else. Once again they had a number one hit album in the UK and another 10 countries, while making the top 5 in a further 5 countries including Australia. It was their most successful album yet, selling 6 million copies worldwide and breaking onto the US market for the first time. But despite the release and success of Nobody Else, Robbie was looking for ways out of the band and had been for the past six months. 
Robbie had grown tired of Gary and Nigel's control over his life and position in the band and wanted to break free. He hardly featured on the album Nobody Else, with not one solo line on the whole album. His drinking and drug taking had reached new lows and on one occasion he was so intoxicated while on holiday with the band that he dove head first into a body of water without checking the depth and split his head open severely concussing himself. Robbie would show up to rehearsals intoxicated and started to become a liability and lazy in the eyes of his bandmates. On top of this, just a year prior, the night before the European MTV Awards in Germany in 1994, Robbie would come close to an overdose after being found passed out, riding up and down naked in an elevator covered in black vomit after doing a large amount of cocaine. On one occasion, he was found by his manager, Nigel, in a hotel room with an international model shaking uncontrollably in a sweat due to the cocaine. Most of these instances would be pushed under the rug to keep Take That's good boy image alive. Robbie felt like his bandmates and Nigel were never there for him, and that maybe he was better off as a solo artist. Robbie began to struggle with the band's dancing routines, and he struggled to retain new information due to his drug abuse. Many of the band members, including Mark, felt that the band dynamic started to shift and jokes that once seemed light slowly became more serious and malicious towards one another. The fun had started to dry up and Nigel had turned them into a money-making machine that was all about lining their pockets and not enjoying themselves anymore. Robbie had lost all self-respect and dyed his hair a trashy-looking bleach blonde. Sick of standing at the back and feeling like he had something to offer the world of entertainment, Robbie felt that he wanted to rebel and break out of the boy band mould and would break a number of Nigel's rules when attending the 1995 Glastonbury Music Festival alone, wasted and drugged up, which would ultimately change a number of lives forever. Robbie arrived at the Glastonbury Festival in a black tinted window Rolls Royce. Onlookers wondered who would get out of the vehicle when out stumbled a 21 year old drunken member of boy band Take That known as Robbie Williams. As he stumbled and bumbled his way around, holding a bottle of champagne in each hand, sporting a spiky messy bleach blonde haircut, red Adidas jacket and appearing to have a missing front tooth. It was a total embarrassment for the Take That brand and would become the top story of the day, centred front and centre in papers and on news programs, even overshadowing the popular concert itself. Robbie was pictured wasted on the ground and spending time with acts like Billy Idol and most notably the Oasis brothers Noel and Liam Gallagher. Robbie tried desperately to fit in with the Oasis members and began recklessly partying with them backstage before being invited on stage during Oasis' set doing a drunk duck walk and making a fool of himself. With Robbie building a newfound friendship with Liam Gallagher of Oasis and realising there is a world outside of Take That, Robbie returned to his bandmates with the attitude that he was done with Take That. With loads of photos and video featuring Robbie's antics at Glastonbury being leaked to the media, it created a whirlwind of heat between Robbie, Nigel and his bandmates, and fans of Take That began fearing the worst for the survival of the band. When Robbie returned from Glastonbury, he returned to his hotel room with his roommate Mark Owen. He was absolutely wasted and headed straight up to his room to sleep it off. When he woke up, he came back downstairs and told Mark, who was his closest bandmate, that he didn't want to be in the band anymore, as he was physically and mentally drained. 
After Robbie expressed his wishes to leave take that, a meeting was organised to discuss these matters. Robbie told them he would perform in their last tour as a means of providing notice, but Nigel and his bandmates told him he may as well go now, as they thought that he would just bring the tour down with him. They sat down as a group at their rehearsal space and told Robbie what they thought of him, how he let them down and how they felt betrayed and that he needed to start pulling his weight. Robbie started to feel like he was being ganged up on and attacked when his bandmates told him, we've been thinking of doing this next tour as a four piece, what do you think? Robbie obviously got upset and started to get defensive and said, if you want me to leave now, I'll go. Robbie stood up and would attempt to have the last laugh as he picked up a melon from a table of fruit and said, can I take this? Which everybody laughed. He walked across the room, looked back and thought, this is it before walking through the door. Attempting to mask his embarrassment, he left it for a few seconds before comically jumping back into the room. Everyone laughed once more before Robbie walked out again, leaving for real. They didn't think he was gone for good and expected him to return the next day, while Rob expected them to stop him from going, but it simply didn't happen that way. Robbie's Take That band members attempted to call Robbie, but upon finding out days later he was on a boat with George Michael and Patti Smith in France, they thought he was well and truly gone. Guessing that Robbie didn't care, Take That attempted to erase Robbie and got back to work deciding to become a four-piece on their Nobody Else tour, and began releasing updated versions of Take That's tracks removing Robbie's vocals. It was announced to the public that Robbie had left the band, which prompted suicide hotlines to be initiated for devastated fans that may be struggling with the news. Their next single titled Never Forget had already been promoted and was released in July around the time Robbie had quit, so it was too late to pull his vocals from the track and his appearance in the music video. Never Forget would become Take That's seventh number one in the UK and also went to number one in four countries. The song would act as the perfect farewell for Robbie and featured Howard on lead vocals for the first time. While the music video displayed images over the course of Take That's career as a five-piece, and images from when they were all young to the present day. After Robbie's departure from Take That and outing with musicians George Michael and Patti Smith, he returned home to his mother's in a depressed state, wanting to break away from the world and ever-present media. All he wanted to do was watch daytime TV, eat comfort food and do absolutely nothing. Robbie was a burnout child star, thrust into the bright lights of fame, struggling to carry on. Due to a clause in his contract, Robbie was technically still owned by Nigel and Take That and wasn't able to release any new music as a solo artist until Take That were to disband, his contract expired or Nigel released him. All Robbie could do was watch his bandmates carry on performing sold out shows around the world without him. Robbie would enter his first public relationship with actress Jacqueline Hamilton Smith during December of 1995. With Robbie now free of Nigel's condemning of having a full-time girlfriend, Robbie was now free to date whoever he pleases. Meanwhile, as Robbie's career took a time out, Take That would tour the UK, Asia and Australia as a four-piece. Mark felt it wasn't the same and it started to become a toxic environment. He felt it wasn't fun anymore without his good mate Robbie and he felt that it was wrong to carry on without him. Take That toured from August in October before taking a break over Christmas. Upon returning from their break, they decided that it just wasn't the same anymore 
and they would release one more single and a greatest hits album, attempting to go out on a high. On Robbie's birthday, the 13th of February 1996, the remaining members of Take That organised a press conference to officially announce that Take That are splitting up. Gary would be the one to announce the end of Take That by saying nervously, Unfortunately, the rumours are true. How Deep Is Your Love is going to be our last single together, and The Greatest Hits is going to be our last album, and from today, there is no more. Luckily for Gary, with the help of Nigel, he had already negotiated a deal with RCA Records to continue as a solo artist, while Mark Owen was also planning on starting his own solo career, signed under BMG Records, and was relieved that Take That had come to an end. Mark would be the only one to remain in regular contact with Robbie over the years, but he too would struggle with his own problems in relation to drugs and alcohol. Howard was strongly against the band disbanding, but had no choice and would go on to struggle severely, almost attempting suicide by contemplating jumping into the River Thames. He would have a shot at a solo career with a song called Speak Without Words before it was pulled from being released. Howard was instead forced to revert back to DJing in clubs, which was one of his passions. Jason would go on to try his hand at acting and appearing in minor TV roles and plays, but he too would fall in and out of success, instead going to college to study and backpack around the world. Over the years they would have minimal contact with one another, except for Mark who would stay in contact with Robbie. Gary Barlow was tipped to be the next big thing, drawing comparisons to George Michael, and expectations were that he was going to be the most successful out of the five members of Take That. Gary would believe his own hype and read too much into those comparing him to star performers, which would be his downfall in the end. Upon hearing of Take That Split, teenagers all over the UK went into meltdown, and for them it was a very dark and emotional day, becoming the biggest story on the news in the UK and around Europe at the time. Despite disbanding, Take That would go out on a high with the Bee Gees cover of How Deep Is Your Love, becoming a big final hit going to number one in the UK in a further eight countries. Their greatest hits album also selling 5 million copies worldwide and charting at number one in 10 countries including the UK. As Take That's final pieces of music hit the charts, Gary Barlow had been working on his debut solo album and was soon set to release his first single. Discovering this was Robbie Williams, who with the help of his new manager Kevin Kinsler, sent out a letter to fans stating that Robbie would soon be back in business. Robbie received a number of advertisement roles in the process, taking one in particular for lingerie, where he would dress in drag. Robbie had been taking a break from the industry, hiding away at his mother's house, and emerged just in time to relaunch his career, just this time a few stone heavier than before. Robbie would sack Kevin Kinsler rather quickly and opted for indie music managers and brothers Tim and Chris Abbott. RCA Records would finally release Robbie of his obligations to his contract coming out of financial cost with Robbie paying himself out of his own contract costing him £200,000 for his freedom. On the 27th of June 1996, Robbie officially signed with EMI Records to a three album deal beginning a new chapter of his career. At one minute past midnight on the 28th of June, Robbie announced at a press conference that he was finally free to launch his solo career and shedding everything that once held him back, with Robbie stating, I have the final say, I push the buttons, whatever goes on from now on, because that's what I fought for. 
he discussed his new record deal and that he would soon be releasing a cover version of George Michael's Freedom as his first single. He won the press over with his Joker persona, but deep down Robbie was still battling his demons quite severely. As the competition for chart domination got underway, Gary Barlow would unleash the first blow when he released the track Forever Love on the 8th of July, which would peak at number one in the UK and three other countries while charting well worldwide. It was the perfect start to Gary's solo career, placing the pressure on Robbie to deliver. It would only last a week though in the top spot, when the newest pop sensation, the Spice Girls, knocked Gary off his perch, pushing him down the charts. About a month later on the 8th of August 1996, Robbie released his debut single Freedom. It would become a worldwide hit but fell short of eclipsing Gary Barlow's Forever Love, peaking at number 2 in the UK due to the Spice Girls holding firm at number 1. It did however reach number 1 in Spain and Scotland and reached the top 10 in 6 countries including Australia. The track was labelled a flop by critics due to it being a cover and failing to sell excessively well. Despite this, Freedom was the perfect song choice for Robbie to depict exactly what he was going through and what he was feeling at the time. George Michael wrote the song in similar circumstances surrounding his record label holding him back from creative freedom. This is evident in the lyrics, Heaven knows I was such a young boy. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I was every little hungry schoolgirl's pride and joy, and I guess that was enough for me. There's someone else I've got to be. Take your picture in a frame. Take back your singing in the rain. I just hope you understand. Sometimes the clothes do not make the man. Funnily enough, the lyrics very closely relate to Robbie's experiences with Take That. Robbie recorded his first ever music video himself to the original George Michael version, even before his own version of the song had been finished. The music video depicting a relieved and happy Robbie to be finally free as the main centre of attention. Robbie would continue with his addictive ways though, as he couldn't start the day without downing a bottle of vodka and having a hit of cocaine. This would often cause him to become aggressive and moody and making him difficult to work for. This led his managers Tim and Chris Abbott to quit and Robbie was left to search for a third manager. Through the management company IE Music, Tim Clark and David Enthoven would become Robbie's longtime managers. As Robbie continued in his addictive ways, it led to his relationship with Jacqueline Hamilton Smith to come to an end after 11 months. While Gary and Robbie were going head to head, take that fan favourite Mark Owen would also experience his own success and would be the first of the three to release his own album called Green Man on the 2nd of December 1996. Mark had released a track called Child just a month earlier that went to number 3 in the UK and charted well worldwide, going to number 1 in Latvia, Taiwan and Spain. His album would sell reasonably low in the UK, charting at number 33, but he saw a great deal of success in Spain where it went platinum and charted at number 3. The album was a very daring alternative Britpop style, very different to that of Take That's, and saw Mark write all the songs on his album. He would go on to release the track Clementine in early 1997, which reached number 3 in the UK and number 2 in Spain and Japan. Mark would release his final single called I Am What I Am, but it limped into number 29 on the charts, which ultimately led to him being dropped by RCA Records, bringing his solo career hopes to a grinding halt and joining Howard and Jason on the sidelines. Robbie would release his first original single from his upcoming debut album, Life Through a Lens, on the 14th of April 1997. 
co-written by Robbie, The Hooters' Eric Bazilian, and songwriting Hall of Famer Desmond Child. All Before I Die was written as an indie rock, Britpop style tune designed to impress Oasis. Despite the track managing to chart at number one in Scotland and Spain, and number two in the UK and Hungary, All Before I Die would sell 200,000 copies before dropping off of the charts altogether. Around two weeks later, Gary Barlow would release the track Love Won't Wait, which was a reworked original by Madonna, but didn't make the cut on her 1994 album Bedtime Stories. It became his second straight number one in the UK, selling 200,000 copies there alone, and charting at number one in Spain also. Gary had now outdone Robbie twice, and pressure began to mount on Robbie to deliver a number one hit. In May of 1997, Robbie would appear in a charity celebrity football tournament, scoring a number of goals alongside his good friend and former Take That bandmate, Mark Owen. The two would remain close from this point on, but it was around this time that the media began to target Robbie on his struggles with drugs and alcohol, and he would be pictured shortly after, looking wasted in the back of a limousine with a bottle of champagne all to himself. Only making things worse was the official release of Gary Barlow's successful debut album, Open Road, which peaked at number one in the UK and Ireland, and going platinum in the UK with 300,000 copies sold. Just when Robbie's latest single, Old Before I Die, signalled he may be onto something, Gary would sink in once more, besting him over and over. During the English summer of June 1997, Robbie was admitted to rehab at Clouds Clinic in Wiltshire for alcohol and drug abuse. After Robbie had been on a bender and had numerous brushes with death due to overdose and suicidal thoughts, it was the legend himself, Sir Elton John, that would come to Robbie's aid. Robbie had reached out to Elton about his addictions and knew deep down that he wanted help, so Elton had him driven to the detox clinic and later to the rehab facility, sandwiched in the back of a car between two men, ensuring he didn't attempt to back out of it or escape. Robbie was admitted to deal with his habits and addictions to alcohol, cocaine, ecstasy, marijuana, speed, prescription meds and heroin. Robbie would remain in rehab sporadically for two months, being allowed out only to work on his music video for his latest single, Lazy Days. While Robbie was still in rehab, Gary Barlow would release yet another single and cover of So Help Me Girl, originally by American country artist Joe Diffie, this time breaking into the US market at number 44 on the US Billboard chart, number 3 on the Adult Contemporary chart, and number 1 on the US Radio Airplay chart. It wasn't as big in the UK, however, coming in at number 11. The people of the UK started to grow bored of Barlow's predictable style, lack of charisma, and soppy love songs. It was now the perfect chance for Robbie to strike, to become the superior solo artist. The tit-for-tat race would continue with Robbie releasing his second single from Life Through a Lens called Lazy Days. The track would chart at number 7 in Scotland and 8 in the UK and was hindered by a lack of promotion due to Robbie's time in rehab. Originally written by Guy Chambers, Robbie would rework the lyrics to suit his style and personal connection to the song. It details the lazy days Robbie would spend after his separation from Take That and the message that it is important to enjoy yourself in life and not worry about making mistakes along the way. Despite the song being a seemingly good Britpop tune to the style of Oasis, it struggled and choked on the charts, putting even more pressure on the wannabe pop star. This wouldn't be helped when Robbie's third single was released on the 15th of September, called South of the Border. It flopped at number 14 in the UK, failing to chart elsewhere and selling extremely low. 
Robbie was now on the verge of being released from his contract with EMI, but his manager Ray Heffernan convinced the record company not to drop him and let him release the album and single first. Many believe this was the end for the former Take That member, who looked to fade off into the background just like Howard, Jason and Mark. Robbie was now well and truly out of rehab, and on the 29th of September 1997, Robbie officially released his debut album Life Through a Lens, launching it with his first live gig as a solo artist at the LC Montmartre in Paris, France, in front of just over 1,000 people. Initially, the album struggled to sell well, debuting at number 11 on the UK charts. It received mixed reviews and sold well under what EMI perceived as adequate. The album would plummet to number 104 on the UK album charts and barely sold over 30,000 copies from September to December. It was enough to get any artist sacked from their record deal, but EMI trusted that one song in particular could hopefully turn it all around. Robbie would begin his first tour in October, calling it The Show Off Must Go On, where he travelled around the UK and Europe performing 32 shows in small venues. Robbie struggled initially with fans trying to sing over the top of him and yelling out comments such as get your kid off as he wanted them to hear the lyrics in his songs and the messages they portrayed but soon adapted and embraced this instead. Gary Barlow would release the title track Open Road as his fourth single during October where it reached number 7 on the UK charts. But things were about to drastically change for the man once touted as the next George Michael. Throughout 1997, Robbie would have a number of short relationships with celebrities such as Sporty Spice or Mel C from the Spice Girls and actress Anna Friel, before meeting Canadian musician Nicole Apperton from the girl group All Saints in November 1997 at the top of the pops while both filming. The two hit it off sparking up a romance but would turn turbulent rather quickly, with the two splitting up and getting back together on many occasions, before Robbie finally proposed to Nicole in the new year of 1998. On the 1st of December 1997, Robbie Williams would release one of the greatest songs of the modern era called Angels. Despite only reaching number 4 in the UK, Angels would become one of the highest selling singles of the 90s in the UK, selling over 1.2 million copies and going double platinum. Angels would also sell extremely well worldwide, despite the charts surprisingly not reflecting this. It reached number 2 in Scotland and Ireland, and despite being an ever popular hit on radio in Australia, it only managed to reach number 40 on the ARIA chart. Angels was a perfect mix of a heartfelt gospel ballad with a bit of Robbie's charisma and grittiness making it a track that everyone can enjoy. The music video is as iconic as the track itself as Robbie is seen with his shaven hairstyle with a black and white camera filter as he walks across an open field. Angels over time would take on a range of origins and meanings with Robbie. Guy Chambers and Ray Heffernan all claiming to have more of a role in the writing process than what was finalised. The most popular theory suggests that Robbie co-wrote the song with his writing partner Guy Chambers after his initial demo was recorded with Ray Heffernan. Robbie wrote the verses while Guy added the chorus and arranged the song within half an hour, making it the hit we all know and love today. The chorus and the line down the waterfall, wherever it may take us, would stem from the two sitting in a cafe while observing a nearby waterfall feature. Robbie dedicated the song to his mother, who had been there for him as his support person through his battles with the music industry, drugs and alcohol, and also raising him as a single parent. 
but according to Ray Heffernan, the two had met in 1996 at a pub in Dublin while Robbie was holidaying. The two ended up sitting together and sat drinking and talking. Robbie ended up staying the night at Ray's with his family and the two quickly became good mates. It was here that Ray and Robbie decided to record and write some music together. According to Ray Heffernan, he pulled out an early version of the track titled Angels Instead, which he dedicated to the death of his son. The two got singing and recorded a drunken recording of the track, and the following year, Ray was contacted by Robbie's managers to inform him that Robbie was including an updated version of the song on his debut album. Ray was upset by this, and to avoid a court appearance, Ray was paid seven to ten thousand pounds for his contribution to the track. Unfortunately for him, he would receive no royalties or writing credits towards the song. Many critics believe that Guy Chambers had more to do with the songwriting process than Robbie, which had always angered Robbie when suggested. Robbie would reveal in 2019 that the true meaning revolved around an encounter with a ghost, or as he describes, as an angel, when he was just a child, and the notion that loved ones come back to care for you. At least leaving the true meaning and originality of the hit we know today being somewhat confirmed. Despite the writing and credits fiasco surrounding Angels, Robbie most certainly made it his own, whether or not he had a big part in the writing process or not. Robbie and Guy would receive two Ivor Novella Awards for Most Performed Work and Best Song Musically and Lyrically in 1998 for the masterpiece. During the Ivor Novella Awards, Robbie would produce a speech of triumph. Charismatic and greatest pop performer of this decade. And uh, to the only man who could ever capture and distill that genius in songs, Guy Chambers and Robbie Williams. Accustomed as I am to gloating in public, <laughs> I'll try my best. Um, I've loads of cocky things to say once we got up here, right? And uh, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. I, uh, you know, I'm just sitting here and watching everybody come up and win the awards, and uh, how big it is just hit me when I was sat at the table. Um, I started out in my solo project with Guy. Um, I said I wanted to be up there with uh, George Michael and Oasis, and I wanted to sell as many records as them. People laughed at me. Fuck off. <laughs> Robbie basically telling the haters, look at him now, receiving an Ivor Novello Award for a song he wrote and he's not done yet. Angels would become Robbie's saving grace, pulling life through a lens from the depths of the UK charts at number 104, all the way to number 1, and has currently sold 4 million copies worldwide, going triple platinum in Europe and 8 times platinum in the UK. In total, Life Through a Lens would spend a total of 218 weeks on the UK album's charts, with 2 weeks in the number 1 spot. It was around this time that Robbie's relationship with Oasis member Liam Gallagher and Noel Gallagher began to sour, with Liam Gallagher commenting on Robbie trying to emulate their Britpop style, saying, isn't he the fat dancer from Take That? The two began a war of words back and forth that would continue for decades to come. 
After the success of Angels, Robbie would perform at the Brit Awards of 1998. Robbie put in a mighty effort and had everybody talking about the new star on the scene. He performed a cover of Steve Harley's Make Me Smile before welcoming the legendary Tom Jones to the stage to sing a duet of Joe Cocker's You Can Leave Your Hat On and Wilson Pickett's Land of a Thousand Dancers as the medley for the full Monty. Robbie got lost in his performance and was full of excitement and energy and had the crowd up on their feet dancing. During 1998, Robbie would return to Glastonbury, this time as a performer, where the crowd enjoyed a great set list of tracks from Robbie's first solo album. On the 16th of March 1998, Robbie released the high-energy pop rock track Let Me Entertain You as his fifth and final single from his debut album. Robbie would be on to another hit this time, peaking at number three on the UK charts and becoming a popular hit on radio. Robbie and Guy wrote the song after being inspired after watching the Rolling Stones film Rock and Roll Circus. Thinking it would be a great show tune type opener for live shows, the two penned the track and it went on to sell 400,000 copies in the UK alone. The song talks about getting a woman to cheat on her boyfriend for Robbie. The memorable music video depicts Robbie in Kiss style makeup as he dances about camp and eccentric like, fueling rumours over his sexuality which ultimately helped the track with its popularity and sales. Other notable tracks on the album, such as Clean, sarcastically addresses Robbie's struggles with substance abuse. One of God's Better People is a beautiful tribute to his mother Jan, while Ego A Go Go is written about Gary Barlow with its tongue-in-cheek style lyrics as Robbie sings, Did I make you laugh when I played the clown? And was I the dog that bit you when you put it down? Break it nicely, break it slow, break it so I got no place to go. Ego A Go Go, now you've gone solo. Living on a memory. Where have you been lately? And do you still hate me? Could you offer an apology? Other great tracks from the album include the sad ballad Baby Girl Window, written by Robbie as a tribute to his former girlfriend Samantha Beckinsale and her comedian father Richard, who had passed away due to a heart attack. While the track titled Killing Me speaks of Robbie's depression, cocaine addiction and toxic individuals such as Nigel Martin-Smith and Gary Barlow leading to his worsening condition. As Robbie sings, There was a time when we were fine and I could tolerate you. I do believe that you should leave because I've grown to hate you. Should I be weak and turn my cheek because I'm scared to fall but I just don't know you and you don't know me at all. I've been told that love's a celebration but I've lost faith through frustration and it's killing me, but killing me slowly. With Robbie's solo career back on track, Gary Barlow's went downhill and fast, after releasing yet another cover song, this time being the track Hang In There Baby by Johnny Bristol, as his final single for his album Open Road in April of 1998. It failed to chart in the UK at all, and the pressure had now started to shift. Despite Robbie's newfound success, not everything was going according to plan. After getting engaged to Nicole Apperton in early 1998, Nicole had fallen pregnant to Robbie and was under pressure by a record company to continue on with All Saints. After Nicole told Robbie about the pregnancy, he was over the moon and excited about the prospect of becoming a father. He placed his hands on her belly and said, This baby is saving my life. But despite having Robbie's support, the pressures of the industry won out when Nicole went and had her pregnancy terminated. She would later reveal this to Robbie, which he was devastated about, but he told her he would stick by her, and the two continued their relationship. Nicole would struggle with what she had done for many years to come, 
Robbie was also struggling with this and continued heavily using drugs, would be admitted to the same rehab clinic once again. In early 1998, Robbie and Guy began writing new material while on holiday in Jamaica for Robbie's second studio album, set for release later that year. He performed on his second tour called The Ego Has Landed, performing 21 shows across Wales, Ireland, Scotland, the Netherlands and the UK. As Robbie toured, Gary was preparing for his final stand when he released his first single called Stronger from his upcoming album 12 Months, 11 Days. Stronger struggled only reaching number 16 in the UK and was viewed as a flop. Robbie would purchase his first apartment in London during this time, finally moving out of his mother's house now at the age of 24. Robbie bought himself a nice brand new TV and PlayStation to go with his new purchase, along with Star Wars memorabilia and a range of his favourite guitars. On the 7th of September 1998, Robbie Williams would have his first number one in the UK with the single release of Millennium for his upcoming second album. Coincidentally, it knocked his fiancé's group All Saints out of first place with their track Pure Shores in the UK. It also charted at number one in Scotland and Ireland, while in Spain it peaked at number two and in New Zealand it reached number three. It even managed to make it to number 20 on the US mainstream top 40 in relation to radio airplay. In the UK alone, it sold over 500,000 copies of the single and was a huge hit at the time, receiving mass airplay. Robbie and Guy wrote the song after wanting a James Bond-style track. Former manager Chris Abbott and Oasis producer Owen Morris suggested the tune from John Barry's You Only Live Twice from the Bond film from 1967. They sped up the tune and found a beat to go with it, with Robbie writing most of the lyrics himself rather quickly. On the 27th of September 1998, Gary Barlow would release his next single called For All That You Want, which yet again flopped, only reaching number 24 in the UK. Robbie had now well and truly taken over Gary with his recent hits. Gary would next release his album 12 Months, 11 Days on the 11th of October, but it was a massive disappointment to fans, which was evident with record sales and the album only made it to number 35 on the UK album chart. After just two weeks, it disappeared from the top 100 altogether. Gary simply couldn't compete with his rival Robbie and his bad boy antics that made him so interesting. Gary refused to be something he wasn't, which ultimately wasn't enough for the public. Shortly after the album's release, and on the verge of releasing his next single, Lie To Me, Gary Barlow was dropped by RCA Records, leaving Robbie as the final former member of Take That standing. On the 26th of October 1998, Robbie released his second studio album called I've Been Expecting You. The album was a hit in the UK going straight to number one in the UK, Scotland and Ireland, while charting in the top five in New Zealand and Norway. Over time he would sell over 5 million copies of the album, with it going 10 times platinum in the UK, received generally positive reviews from critics, would become one of his best selling albums of his career and the best seller of 1998 in the UK. A more balanced, mature side of Robbie comes out in this album with a more pop-centred approach, helping his positioning on the charts. Following the release of the album, Robbie would release No Regrets on the 30th of November 1998 as his second single with the track, peaking at number 4 in the UK and selling over 200,000 copies. The pop-rock ballad was written about his former Take That band members, most notably about Gary Barlow and the way he felt when in the band and when he left. Robbie would often dedicate the track to a particular member of Take That on each night of his tour. 
The angsty song depicts the pain and anger Robbie feels towards his former bandmates and how they would tell him that you're fine and it's all in your head and watch on as he struggled. As the lyrics state, I didn't lose my mind, it was mine to give away. Couldn't stay to watch me cry, you didn't have the time, so I softly slip away. Robbie continues with the powerful lines depicting his hurt and pain as he sings, I don't want to hate, but that's all you've left me with. A bitter aftertaste and a fantasy of how we all could live. No regrets, they don't work. No regrets, they only hurt. I know they're still talking, the demons in your head. If I could just stop hating you, I'd feel sorry for us instead. Robbie continues to discuss the lame and fake smiles that they were forced to put on. And in the line, write me a love song, drop me a line. Robbie discusses how he would never get the chance to write for the band and how he would now and then be given a line or two to sing but was hurt by this as he wanted more of a say and input. Robbie ends the song with the hard-hitting line, I guess the love we once had is officially dead. It's evident that the way Robbie felt forced out of the band due to a lack of love and acceptance is still haunting him to this day. The following year, Robbie would finally split up with his fiancée Nicole in January 1999, after their relationship was full of turbulence and ups and downs. Robbie would shortly move on with Irish singer Andrea Corr of the band The Cause for a short period before remaining single for much of 1999. Believably still torn about his breakup with Nicole, Robbie would release his next single called Strong on the 15th of March 1999. It was another great pop rock tune that would see it peak at number 4 on the UK charts as well as reaching number 9 in New Zealand. Written while on tour in a hotel room in Cologne, Germany, Robbie wanted to deliver a message to his hardcore fans about the vulnerable side of him and that he isn't as perfect as they think he is, as he describes the lazy days he spent while depressed after leaving Take That, while also pointing out how surreal and scary his career had become. Robbie delivers some great descriptive lyrics about his lifestyle as he sings, My breath smells of a thousand fags, and when I'm drunk I dance like me dad. I've started to dress a bit like him. Early morning when I wake up, I look like Kiss but without the makeup. As he continues to detail the extent of his daytime TV binging and lazy days as he sings, My bed's full of takeaways and fantasies of easy lays. The pause button's broke on my video. And is this real cause I feel fake? Oprah Winfrey, Ricky Lake, teach me things I don't need to know. Before delivering the great chorus line, Cause my life's a mess and I'm trying to grow, so before I'm old, I'll confess. You think that I'm strong, you're wrong. During May of 1999, Robbie would release a compilation album of his past two albums' work, calling it The Ego Has Landed, in the hope of breaking into the US market. It managed to sell over 500,000 copies in the US, but struggled by only reaching number 63 on their album chart. Despite this, the album went to number one in New Zealand and went nine times platinum and was popular in Canada also. He backed this up with a promotional tour of both Canada and the US from May to June before traveling around Europe and returning to the States to perform more promotional shows before releasing his next singles. Robbie would release his fourth single from I've Been Expecting You called She's The One on the 8th of November 1999. Originally the song was written by Carl Wallinger of the band World Party, which Guy Chambers was once a member of. Robbie had taken a liking to the track after his experience in rehab. Robbie had made it his own and the pop ballad became Robbie's second number one in the UK, where it sold 600,000 copies and went platinum. 
It also charted at number one in Scotland and reached the top five in New Zealand, Ireland and Denmark. She's the one would go on to win two Brit Awards the following year at the 2000 Brit Awards for British Single of the Year and British Video of the Year, which features Robbie as an ice skating coach to a skating duo before the male competitor gets injured and Robbie takes his place, performing the winning trick to win the competition. Along with She's the One, Robbie released the track It's Only Us as a double A-side, which meant it also went to number one in the UK and Scotland, despite not being as popular as She's the One. The music video showed Robbie being stuck inside a video game, which led to the track being used as a theme song on the video game EA Sports FIFA 2000. Robbie gave the FIFA creators an ultimatum that he would let them use the song for FIFA as long as his favourite team, Port Vale FC, are included despite being in the lowest tire of the EPL at the time. Robbie was a huge fan of video games and would often tour with a portable Game Boy to play in between gigs. He would often be happy on tour as long as he had a PlayStation TV set up in his hotel room for downtime after a concert. Other notable tracks from the album include the Britpop song Win Some, Lose Some, which was exclusively released to New Zealand in 2000 and charted at number 7, where it spent four weeks inside the top 10. The track was written about his relationship breakdown with former fiance Nicole Apperton from their early days when they first met to the serious side of things, and features a voicemail recording of her voice at the beginning of the track, where she says, I love you baby, a number of times. Tracks such as Phoenix from the Flames and These Dreams were written for his sister and they are simply beautiful, underrated ballads as they depict a vulnerable side to Robbie and a rawness that hadn't been explored as thoroughly in his debut album. In both songs they talk about his sister Sally escaping from a toxic relationship, dealing with depression like Robbie and having your dreams and aspirations shattered only for Robbie to encourage that things will get better as he sings in Phoenix from the Flames. Silence shields the pain, so you say nothing, feel they've rigged the game, and you're done with loving. Only you can see the darkness in the northern lights. Phoenix from the flames, we will rise together, they will know our names, can you feel it? In the moving rock ballad that features a grey acoustic rhythm titled Heaven From Here, Robbie provides a tribute about his mother as he sings, I'll shelter you, make it alright to cry, and you'll help too, cause the faith in myself has run dry. We are love, and I just want to hold you near. No, no fear, we will see heaven from here. I see real love in your eyes, and it fills me up when you start to cry. One track in particular titled Grace was a beautiful but sad tribute to the baby that Nicole had decided to abort against Robbie's wishes. Robbie had intended to call the baby Grace if it were to be a girl, and in the song he speaks about how he wishes she was here and expresses his love for her. The lyrics go on to say, Grace, I'm not yet born, come embrace, a soul that's torn, I have got so much to give you. My heart is starved of love in these radio days, I try to listen hard to what my conscience says, I know I've sold my soul, I'm going to earn it back now. And the line, now that you believe in me, we can fly away, somewhere safe. It is obvious from the lyrics that Robbie is torn about the loss of his would-be son or daughter and that he is still trying to deal with the pain and feels numb wishing he could have done more. At the beginning of the year 2000, Robbie would end another relationship, this time with his manager's Danish stepdaughter, Tanya Strecker, who was also a model. 
Robbie's rival Liam Gallagher of Oasis would swoop in and take Robbie's former fiancée, Nicole Apperton, for himself in early 2000, with the two going on to have a 13-year relationship and a child. Robbie and Nicole would always stay close, with Robbie holding a special place for Nicole as his first love, but Robbie's feud with Liam had only intensified at the Brit Awards on the 3rd of March 2000. After winning the award for best single, making it his ninth Brit Award, during his acceptance speech, he sent out a challenge to Liam Gallagher to fight him in a boxing match, adding more fuel to the fire. So, would anybody like to see me fight Liam? Would you pay to come and see it? Liam, 100 grand of your money, 100 grand of my money, we'll get in the ring and we'll have a fight and you can all watch it on TV, what do you think about that? Now what are you going to do here or are you going to pussy out your f***ing wimp? Robbie was obviously upset by Nicole moving on from him and getting with his biggest rival in the industry and he would soon begin another relationship of his own with another Spice Girl, Jerry Halliwell, or also known as Ginger Spice. The relationship would remain quite discreet, with Robbie once describing on the Graham Norton show that in order to sneak her out of his apartment to escape the paparazzi, he had to sneak her out inside a duffel bag and place her in the boot of his car and drove off. Robbie would often be renowned for his hilarious interviews and great stories. Robbie had already begun working on his next album that would see him move further away from his Oasis Britpop style and form more of his own style with more of a dance pop centric vibe and British style ballads and would become one of his best albums of his career. On the 31st of July 2000, Robbie would release Rock DJ as his first single for his upcoming album. Rock DJ was an instant worldwide hit with its funky catchy beat and lyrics. Robbie tries his hand at rapping for the first time and it pays off for the track going to number one in the UK, Ireland, Scotland, New Zealand and Iceland, while reaching the top five in Australia, Spain and Italy. It went on to sell 600,000 copies in the UK alone and selling 4 million copies worldwide, becoming the fourth best-selling single of the year in the UK. The song was written about trying to impress a particular female disc jockey, but it's not been confirmed who the song was originally about. The music video would emulate this as Robbie is seen dancing in the centre of a roller disco with roller skating women moving about around him. He tries to impress a particular female DJ by stripping down to his iconic tiger-faced underwear, but to no avail. Robbie then proceeds to rip his skin, flesh, muscles and organs off until he is reduced to bone. Only then is the girl impressed and begins to dance with him. The gory video would see this part censored throughout the world and was removed from a range of European music video channels along with the UK's Top of the Pops due to the controversial gory nature of the scene. But the video worked wonders and had people talking, which ultimately boosted sales. The video ends with a message stating no Robbies were harmed in the making of this video, just to set some at ease. The video suggests the lengths Robbie is expected to go to just to impress a particular woman. The video, however, became popular in the US, where it was nominated for Best Male Video, Breakthrough Video, and won an MTV Video Music Award for Best Visual Effects in 2001, which also saw it receive radio airtime in the US. 
Still to this day, a limited amount of countries play the uncensored version. Rock DJ would also go on to be nominated for an Ivor Novella Award for Most Performed Work, while winning two Brit Awards for British Single and Video of the Year, and winning Best Song at the European MTV Music Awards. Robbie then decided to auction off a number of his personal items for a charity organisation he started up called Give It Some, which set out to raise funds for strengthening the community and supporting the disadvantaged in his hometown of Stoke-on-Trent. Robbie would auction off his famous Rock DJ underwear, his mattress that he supposedly had a number of triumphs on, and the blue Robbie Williams jerseys seen on the album cover for his upcoming album, Sing When You're Winning. During the year 2000, Robbie would demolish walls with a wrecking ball as a statement to raise awareness for AIDS and testicular cancer. Robbie would go on to help a number of charities, including the terminally ill Famine in Africa and children's charities. On the 28th of August 2000, Robbie would release his third studio album titled Sing When You're Winning. The album would go straight to number one in the UK, Ireland, New Zealand and Germany, while reaching the top ten in 12 countries including Australia, Mexico and Switzerland, becoming his most popular worldwide album yet and selling around 6.1 million copies. Robbie had now improved on sales with every new release, but with his step away from Britpop, Robbie's sales slightly declined in the UK. The name of the album is a reference to the Port Vale FC team song and Robbie's love of football which is emulated on the album artwork as Robbie is seen portraying a team of Robbies celebrating after winning the trophy. Like many of his albums, Robbie would include a bonus track on the final song of the album. During this one however, Robbie tricks the listener after the last track Road to Mandalay finishes. 24 minutes of a blank recording passes by before Robbie says, No, I'm not doing one on this album. Around this time, Robbie would finally settle a deal with former manager Nigel Martin-Smith, who had dragged out court proceedings for years due to Robbie leaving Take That. In the end, it would cost Robbie £600,000 to break free from the case and into Nigel's pocket. Shortly after this, Robbie would be hit by court cases and fees of £2.4 million after his former managers, the Abbott brothers and Kevin Kinsler, sued him. On the 9th of October, Robbie would release his latest single called Kids, which was a collaboration with Australian pop star Kylie Minogue. After Kylie had approached both Robbie and Guy Chambers to write some material for her upcoming album called Light Years, Robbie and Guy co-wrote the tracks Your Disco Needs You and Love Boat, while the track titled Kids would feature on both Robbie and Kylie's album. The flirty pop hit would reach number two in both the UK and Scotland, just behind U2's Beautiful Day. It would also reach the top 10 in Iceland, Ireland and New Zealand. Although Kids only charted at number 14 in Australia, the inclusion of the Aussie pop star Kylie Minogue made Robbie a household name there and began to see him gain many fans in Australia, which aided his future chart success in the country. The music video featured the two hottest stars in British music looking very intimate and flirtatious, sparking many rumours of the two hooking up, but this was later dismissed by both of them, reportedly with Kylie rejecting offers from Robbie. The two however did go on tour together from October to November to promote the track, selling out all of their shows together around the UK and Scotland before Robbie headed off to continue his tour of Europe. Robbie's next hit would come on the 11th of December 2000 called Supreme. Supreme would go on to number one in both Poland and Hungary while reaching the top five in seven countries, including the UK and New Zealand, while also becoming popular in Australia and France. 
Supreme would sample the melody from Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive and was written about Robbie's quest to find love and struggle to find the right woman for him, fearing he would run out of time to find the one and always second guessing his worth and physical attractiveness. As the lyrics say, it seemed forever stopped today. All the lonely hearts in London caught a plane and flew away. All the best women are married. All the handsome men are gay. You feel deprived. Are you questioning your size? Is there a tumor in your humor? Are the bags under your eyes? Do you leave dents where you sit? Are you getting on a bit? Will you survive? You must survive. When there's no love in town, this new century keeps bringing you down. All the places you have been, trying to find a love supreme. Supreme is up there as one of Robbie's best lyrically written and arranged pieces of music and is often underrated. The search for love would continue for Robbie when he and Jerry Halliwell split up in early 2001. Funnily enough, Jerry would present Robbie with Best British Artist of the Year at the 2001 Brit Awards after they had broken up, but the two would remain close friends. Robbie would fill this hole with drugs, sex with loads of random women, and with expensive collector cars. In the new year, on the 9th of April 2001, Robbie would release yet another track called Let Love Be Your Energy, exploring Robbie's search for love in this positive anthem that also explores the concept of love changing the world for the better. The track would reach number 9 in Scotland, 10 in the UK and 11 in New Zealand and was the least successful single of the album. On the 9th of July 2001, Robbie would release two singles in one including Eternity and The Road to Mandalay. Eternity didn't feature on the album but was included as a single as it was a beautiful ballad written about his now ex-girlfriend Jerry Halliwell and how he sincerely wishes her well as the lyrics state, You were there for summer dreaming and you gave me what I need and I hope you find your freedom for eternity. The two remained very close friends despite the relationship ending. While The Road to Mandalay has a happy cruising melody, the lyrics are much deeper as they discuss Robbie's struggles with his rise to fame, costing him love and leading him into a life of addiction and scrutiny. The lyrics depict this as Robbie sings, everything I touched was golden, everything I love got broken on The Road to Mandalay. Every mistake I've ever made has been rehashed and then replayed as I got lost along the way. The double single would go straight to number one in both the UK and New Zealand while reaching the top five in four other countries, eventually selling 800,000 copies worldwide. The B-side for the double single was titled Toxic and was a sad underrated track that dives into Robbie's depression and dark thoughts surrounding some toxic encounters he has had with people in his time as he delivers the brilliant lyric Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can burn a happy home. It's true. I've got words for you. The past is gone. It's gone forever. Don't tell me my pain is pleasure. You. You haven't got a clue. I want to cry, but I don't make a sound. I'm your child, and your child is feeling down. Everybody's toxic in this town. Later that year, in October, Robbie would release an acoustic track called Better Man exclusively to Australia, reaching number 6 on the ARIA chart, and in New Zealand the track reached number 4. Better Man is as straightforward as the title suggests, and continues with the album's theme of finding love and becoming a better version of himself, in order to do so. Again, Robbie describes the pain of his search for true love as he appears to sing to God to send him someone to love, as he sings, Send someone to love me. I need to rest in arms. Keep me safe from harm. In pouring rain. Give me endless summer. Lord, I fear the cold. Feel I'm getting old. Before my time. As my soul heals the shame, I will grow through this pain. 
Lord, I'm doing all I can to be a better man. But the songs detailing Robbie's painful search for love wouldn't stop there, with other deep but beautiful songs such as If It's Hurting You, Singing for the Lonely, and Love Calling Earth, just some of the underrated tracks on the album. Robbie displays many of his vulnerabilities throughout this album, such as self-loathing, depression, anxiety, and his own insecurities. During the beginning of Love Calling Earth, Robbie talks about these feelings, as he sings, I'm controlled by my fear, all the voices in my head that I can hear, and how do I learn to give and love and be loved in return. While in Singing for the Lonely, Robbie speaks in depth about his anxiety and insecurities as he sings, Here comes wasted headspace, paranoia, anger misplaced, feelings leave me nowhere all the time. I don't wake up early in the morning, cause the more I sleep the less I have to say. Scared of you always thinking that I'm boring, stop me yawning my life away. I'm so sick of people's expectations, leaves me tired all the time. If your home's full of useless aggravation, then don't bring it to mine. Robbie's third studio album was a massive success, and he now had four number ones to his name in the UK, as well as nine Brit Awards after taking out British male solo artist, as well as the two from Rock DJ. After completing his tour called The Sermon on the Mount in March, Robbie embarked on a second leg further promoting his latest album, calling it The Weddings, Bar Mitzvahs and Stadiums Tour, which included trips around the UK and Europe, and for the first time he would venture to Australia, China, Singapore, Taiwan and New Zealand, performing around 50 shows over the course of two years. Robbie would reveal over his career that he would regularly second-guess himself before going on stage, and his anxiety would kick into overdrive, but once he was out there, he turns into a completely different person, and loves it almost like having a split personality. Robbie even thought about quitting as a solo artist to front a band full-time, as he described it as a lonely life while on tour. This was evident when rumours circulated of him joining the legendary band, Queen, after recording We Were Rock You with Brian May and Roger Taylor for the film A Knight's Tale starring Heath Ledger. His manager David Entoven believes that Robbie is an easy man to please on tour, as long as he has somewhere to lay his head, a TV and Playstation to unwind, and space to play his instruments. It was during this tour that Robbie would perform in front of 80,000 people at Slane Castle in Ireland the biggest he had performed in front of until Nebworth years later. The 2001 tour also marked a scary moment where Robbie was violently pushed in the back and off stage in the middle of a song by a stage intruder. Robbie was pushed into the front row and got back up onto the stage and said, Is everybody okay? The crowd screamed, Yes. He says, So am I. I'm not going to let any fucker get on this stage and stop you having a good time. Robbie continued to perform, brushing the incident off and had a great show. In between his trip to Australia, he took a two-week break to work on a new album, this time changing his style completely to record a collection of classical covers. Robbie was a big fan of Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin and grew up on the music his dad listened to. He dedicated the album to these three legends of Swing and titled the album Swing When You're Winning. It was officially released on the 19th of November 2001, the day after his final show of his latest tour in Auckland, New Zealand. Just a month before the album's release, Robbie performed at the Royal Albert Hall as a promotion for the album, where he performed a memorable cover of My Way by Frank Sinatra, earning him the respect and rave reviews from many classical critics and lovers. Swing When You're Winning went to number one worldwide in eight countries including New Zealand and the UK, while charting within the top five in nine countries, including Australia. 
Robbie's portrayal of the covers shocked many and opened him up to a new range of listeners as he would eventually sell around 7.5 million copies worldwide, his best-selling album yet. One of Robbie's best covers on the album was Mac the Knife. While an original I Will Talk and Hollywood Will Listen spoke about Robbie's aspirations and dreams to become a household name and make it in America. Actors and musicians such as Jane Horrocks, John Lovitz and a voice recording of Frank Sinatra all featured on tracks on the album. While Robbie's close childhood friend Jonathan Wilkes would also feature on the catchy cover of Me and My Shadow. Robbie's versions of Mr. Bojangles and Beyond the Sea were simply brilliant, with some critics saying his rendition of Mr. Bojangles is one of the best and is very original. While the cover of Beyond the Sea would feature on a range of films, including the blockbuster children's film Finding Nemo. But there would be one perfect duet in particular that would become a worldwide hit. That song was Something Stupid, featuring another Australian, this time actress Nicole Kidman. Released on the 14th of December, Something Stupid peaked at number 1 in 5 countries, including the UK and New Zealand, while reaching the top 10 in 11 countries, including Kidman's home country of Australia. Once performed by Frank and Nancy Sinatra, Robbie and Nicole made it their own and had natural chemistry, again sparking fresh rumours that the two were dating, only to be rejected. On the 8th of April 2002, Robbie would feature on the track My Culture by electronic duo One Giant Leap and Maxi Jazz. Robbie would provide backing traps to Maxi Jazz's rap before singing the chorus and his own verse, where he takes a slight stab at his father. The track managed to reach number 9 in both Scotland and the UK and cracked the top 40 worldwide, but would fade off rather quickly. As Swing When You're Winning hit the shelves, Robbie got to work on his fifth studio album called Escapology. In early 2002, Robbie had signed a record-breaking deal with EMI for £80 million, becoming the biggest deal in British music history to date. Upon the news breaking of the deal, Robbie was famously quoted as saying, I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams. Some of the terms of the contract included allowing Robbie to have more creative control and freedom over his albums and a commitment from EMI to help him break into the American market. Robbie had recently moved to Los Angeles in the US in order to escape the media circus in England, while also attempting to be closer to the action in hopes of breaking into the Billboard charts. Robbie looks set to take on the American market and build on his successful solo career to date. After having a run of hits such as Rock DJ, Kids, Angels and Let Me Entertain You, No Regrets and Millennium, he was ready to begin the next chapter of his career. But it would be a rocky road to happiness and success for Robbie, with many life-changing moments full of ups and downs still yet to come. Okay, thank you everyone for listening. I really hope you enjoyed episode 4, part 1, featuring Robbie Williams. Please make sure you like, share, rate, subscribe, and leave a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you would like to support the podcast by becoming a patron, head to Patreon to check out how you can keep this podcast going and sign up to one of three membership packages, starting at just $1 a month, which includes extra content and bonuses. Again, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Stay tuned for next week's episode, which will be part two of the Robbie Williams story.
I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.